If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. I could not be more excited about my guest today. We are fortunate to be talking with Tamson Webster. Tamson has spent the last 20 years helping experts drive action from their ideas. Part message strategist, part storyteller, part English to English translator. Her work focuses on how to find and build the stories that donors, partners, investors, clients, and customers will tell themselves and others. Tamsin honed her experience through the work in and for major companies that she's done, companies and organizations like Johnson & Johnson, Harvard Medical School, and Intel, as well as her work with startups that represent the next wave of innovation in life science, biotech, climate tech, fintech, and pharma. She's a professional advisor at the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship and a mentor for the Harvard Innovation Labs. For more than eight years, she has served as executive producer and idea strategist for one of the oldest independently organized TED Talk events in the world. That's TEDx Cambridge. Most recently, Tamsin was named to the Thinkers 50 Radar Class of 2022 Thinkers to Watch. She published her first book, Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Ideas Irresistible in 2021. And although I've been a big Tamsin fan since I read Find Your Red Thread. A couple of years ago, we met for the very first time last fall at the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference where we both gave keynotes. Tamsin, welcome to the call. Tammy, I'm delighted to be here. And it was such a pleasure to meet you last fall. Oh, well, truly the pleasure is mine. Thank you. So I know you're just back from speaking and learning at the National Speakers Association, their winter conference in San Antonio. How was it? And what were your big takeaways that our audience might find useful? Oh, you know, I I always love to, even though I am, as I said to the audience, I'm a strategist who speaks and not so much a speaker first, though I've been speaking now for 20 years. It's always lovely to spend time with other people who do that very strange thing of speaking from the stage as part of the work that they do. I would say the big takeaways this time around were just really how fast the world is changing around us. So there was a wonderful woman from Kazakhstan, Dr. Nadia. She just really interesting about how fast things are changing, how quickly things are changing, and how reinvention now needs to be a continuous process. One of the big takeaways from her talk was that if we wait until the decline In something to reinvent, the chance of full recovery or the chance of recovery at all is less than 10%. So she really landed that really powerfully, which is you can't wait till you start failing to start figuring something out. You need to start figuring out what the next phase is while you're still on the upswing which I think is a big shift in thinking for our organizations because a lot of ways we've thought, well, this has been working for a while now. Let's just keep working until something looks like it's going wrong. And she's basically like, no, the minute you start to see something go wrong, it might be too late. 
that I think was probably the biggest thing. And then there's things that were related to that with the conference, just tools that we need to be paying attention to and how to, you know, make sure the businesses are strengthened, you know, and strong to face all that. But that I would say was the big takeaway from the conference. That's a huge culture shift for sure. Yeah. Like we long for certainty. And it's just not there anymore. She had this wonderful analogy of, let's say, kind of imagine that there was a bacteria, right, that kind of killed everything in its path. It's kind of The Last of Us, if you've been watching that on HBO, but that's a fungus. And she was saying, like, if you imagine that it doubles every minute, right, you know, how long until you feel like you would need to notice something, right? At what point would you need to do something? And she had set it up by saying, you know, just write down, like if you saw like a decline, let's say in your donor pool, you know, at what point would you like, raise the red flag on that? Would it be at 5%? Would it be at 10%? Would it be at 20%? Would it be 25%? Then she switched into this analogy and talking about this and said, you know, now imagine that this was in the Pacific Ocean. She said, how long do you think it would take like minute by minute by minute or day by day by day or hour by hour by hour for this bacteria to wipe out all life in the Pacific Ocean? And so people were giving guesses and whatever. And, you know, the answer, she revealed it, was 119 minutes. Wow. And even more dramatic, at 118 minutes, 50% were still there, right? And 117 minutes, right? It's 75%. So in other words, she was just really saying, we have to be thinking about this, is that the minute you start to see, you know, even a couple percentage points of a drop in retention or, you know, rise and churn or that kind of thing, it may be a sign that we have to adjust the point at which we start to intervene and we start to change things because waiting until things quote unquote look really bad, maybe we have waited too long to actually be able to recover, which Mm. was just like terrifying. But at the same time, she's like, there's still hope, right? Like there is a chance. We just have to be open to being thoughtful about where is the world going kind of you know, minute by minute, day by day, and have to realize that you know, waiting is death in a lot of ways. And as, as dramatic as that is, you know, she just, she landed that point with such incredible power. I don't think anybody walked out of that room thinking, yeah, I'm fine <laughs> keep, keep doing the things that I'm doing. Or even because so many of these folks are talking with clients, like in organizations and, and companies, you know, our clients aren't fine right? Our clients aren't fine. And because they're feeling the effect of that. So it was also a call to empathy and understanding mm-hmm. that the stress that this is putting on you know, fundraisers and leaders and all of that is extraordinary and that we need to be kind of building in that awareness as well. So I think she was absolutely worth the price of admission of that conference. Yeah. So powerful. So powerful. And if that's not a wake up call, Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, she was the first speaker of the second day too. So it was like, oh, okay, <laughs> we are um, doing this. But it was a really good frame. It was a good frame for everything else that came after because it created, I think, that sense of urgency that our own human wiring says, well, we can wait. Like it's, you know, because as she said, like the whole slow and steady wins the race needs to be replaced with the early bird gets the worm. Like we got to shift that. Like you've got to be thinking, about where this could be going. And again, that just that point of you've got to reinvent while you're still in the growth curve. Like that's the time. As soon as you've started to level out, like that's your last best chance to reinvent. But as soon as the arc starts to dip, like then then it may be too late. Really just shifting forward when you have to think you need to be doing something different, I think is a really important thing for all of us, no matter where we are, for-profit, non-profit, you know, in the organization, advising the organization, we got to be thinking about what's coming next and how can we help people get there, not just from an idea standpoint and a services standpoint, but just from a support standpoint, because it's a lot, you know, we're dealing with a lot. Yeah. So powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Like that is for me, like almost a pause and ponder, but we're going to move on. Yeah. (laughs) Tamsin, tell us about the concept of the red thread and how it makes our big ideas irresistible. A red thread is the story that connects, right? A question and an answer, right? Where our brains do this all the time, automatically, that this happened because this happened. And pre-consciously, we've created that relationship with cause and effect. So the whole idea of Find Your Red Thread, the book, was to say, 
since our audiences, our donors, our constituents, our stakeholders, our communities are doing this anyway, when they decide to support us, to donate to us, to fund us, why don't we build our story from that perspective first? Why don't we build the story that they're going to tell themselves and other people about us rather than trying to just you know, broadcast ours out there and hope it sticks. We believe, we trust, we rely on our own stories more. So the whole idea of the book was let's flip that around. Let's build the stories that our audiences will tell themselves. And the book is a step-by-step process for how to do that. So cool. And if anyone has not yet read that book, pick up a copy, read that book. I promise you it will change your perspective on your storytelling. Tamsin, You've been working in and with nonprofits since you were 19 years old. I know. Oh my gosh. Wow. So that's 30 years now. That's crazy. But yes. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So you've seen firsthand how we always seem to gravitate to that hero's journey in our storytelling, right? We have this really ordinary person, like a normal everyday person facing these extraordinary challenges. And then they are tested by either self-limiting beliefs or fear or circumstances, and they're confronted by a villain. And in the nonprofit world, the villain could be racism, it could be poverty, it could be hunger, it could be sex trafficking, like the gamut of reasons why we do this work. And yet they persevere with the help of generous supporters and others in the community. And eventually they triumph, right? So the traditional Joseph Campbell hero's journey. As I mentioned when I introduced you, you spoke so brilliantly at the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference last year about a broader narrative, Mm -hmm. right? A bigger, scalable kind of story. And from that keynote, I walked away with three key messages. The first one was, we've been hijacked by heroes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The the second big takeaway is that we need to build stories that scale. Mm -hmm. And the third being that every story needs a moment of truth. And yet very few stories that we tell really have a moment of truth. Yes. So we'll I'm delighted moment- that's what you walked away with because I, I would have been delighted with one of those if not all three. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went back to my notes in my moleskin and it was like, oh, transported back to the moment. So we'll get to the moment of truth. But for now, talk to us about why we need stories that scale mm. and how we go about doing that. Sure. Well, I think the hero's journey is, I mean, there's, there's so many reasons why it's a popular format. It exists in some form or another in about every culture. I think, however, it's become so dominant that some subset of us have forgotten that there are other forms of stories. It is actually only one form of story. And what's more, as I believe some nonprofits have run into, it doesn't always fit very well. Because the dominant rule within marketing of the use of the hero's journey is that your your customer or your client should always be the hero, not you. And that oftentimes starts to get instantly complicated when we're in a nonprofit because who's the hero, right? Is it the person, is it the folks that you're nonprofit exists to serve? Is it your donor? You know, and I would say that the rise of donor communication and the rise of the dominance of hero's journey is not accidental. It's not inseparable. But we also know that it is can be problematic when we put so much on the backs of a donor. Because yeah. one of the quote unquote rules of the hero's journey is that the hero solves the problem. The hero saves the day, which means that after it, the problem should be gone. And yet for a lot of our nonprofits, if the hero is the donor, even if the hero is the organization itself, You see, it would be disingenuous at best to say that, oh, well, we've solved systemic racism. We've solved sexual trafficking. So it's troublesome in that way. So part of what I was trying to do with the red thread was to find a, a set of elements that were kind of nice and clear, like we have in the hero's journey, but that applied in every kind of situation. So instead of it being a specific hero, right, we're anchoring it in, you know, what is a question that remains unanswered, right? How do we mitigate climate change? How can we reduce the impact of trauma intergenerationally? Like those kinds of things. And then what is the real problem that has to be solved before we can solve that? Right. And that's where I think nonprofits have an extraordinary operation to play and where we can start to put this broader, bigger story that isn't so hero dependent kind of in the center of what we're doing. 
Because if there's this big question that goes unanswered, like, you know, how do we mitigate climate change, just as an example? Well, that's something that the organization exists to serve. Like there are beneficiaries of that. All of us, you know, everybody in the community that that that, that organization serves. It's a good way to qualify your donors, right? Because either you're there to help answer this question or you're not. And it allows us to kind of have, a, I think, a much more natural, neutral focus point than the donor or the community or the mission and the organization, right? All of those things are around that narrative. So my reason why I think we need those scalable stories is that we need those elements that kind of exist in all stories and the ones I talk about in the book, because if we get the story of the organization, that narrative of the organization into those parts, then we have identified the components and more importantly, the principles behind why we do what we do that particular way in such a way that we can adapt it when we are talking to an individual donor about what their potential impact could be. We have the opportunity to broaden it to the point of the whole community so we can talk about that narrative and all of these pieces flow together. We have an ability to get that consistency of message that we're always looking for and that you know every marketing and development department I've ever been have always in battle over because that consistency of message so often comes at the inability to customize it. But that's when we have these scale Scalable stories. We have this ability to make sure that there's consistency in principle, and then we've got the ability to customize it situationally, depending on who we're talking to, what the outcome is that we need to get, and all of those other things that are so important to the effective functioning of a nonprofit. So it really is kind of this yes and. It's having yeah. the stories and the narrative really work in concert, like this you know, the story is the living proof. It's the example of what happened, typically based in the past. Yeah. So inability to impact is minimal. Right. I've exactly. learned yep. that from you. Yep. But the narrative sets the bigger context, like, and this will continue to happen because like the larger narrative. Yeah. The stories that we so often tell as case studies or of kind of success stories or donor stories or whatever they might be. Yeah. As you say, like they're already over, which makes it very hard for somebody else to see unless they have a very, very, very similar story about how to see how that relates to them. It's kind of like, oh, that's nice, but I don't see how that affects me. The narrative can structure the same way as a story. So like the pieces don't change, right? Even if the kind of the purpose and the plot does. But this larger narrative is a story that hasn't ended yet. I like to think of it as like as an everlasting story. It's a story where you've articulated what the endpoint would look like, but it requires like everybody operating together in order to achieve it. So it's that kind of piece. So you're right. I mean, I see the narrative as the big thing that we're building to. And the example I used in that talk was, you know, the American dream, you know, work hard enough and you can achieve anything is a great example of a narrative. We could break it down into its component parts, but then there's a million individual stories that kind of build up and explain why that's been dominant as a narrative gives us opportunities to create new versions of that narrative. So when we've got problematic older stories like, you know, Carnegie or something like that, we've got, you know, newer stories that we can use, like the founder of Chobani, like coming in as an immigrant and again, making this amazing change and giving back to the country and to the world. When you have that narrative, you have that ability to kind of have both, but you, you really need to understand what that larger narrative is. And it isn't just your mission and it isn't just an individual kind of hero's journey story that your organization you know, puts out in, you know, day in, day out. And that narrative, it seems to me that for some causes, it could seem so big and so long-term that maybe it feels like the donor, the community, the constituent, like they can't necessarily impact it. But that's, I think, why those key milestones, like thinking back to Jim Collins, good to great, and his mm. concept of the big, hairy, audacious goal that there are five-year, 10-year milestones. There are these footholds that people can envision helping organizations to achieve in support of that bigger long-term narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can, I mean, any good story, for instance, like any good three acts story, you know, each act has three acts, each scene has three acts. Like, so it's always possible to get you know, a story that where you have the elements that can scale down to the specificity and the scale or even the time horizon that you need. But I think that one of the analogies that 
works well, I think, when you're talking about a problem that is so endemic or so big that it doesn't feel like we can ever do anything. And there is that tendency to throw your hands up and go, well, what difference could we make? I love to think of it as the kind of old fashioned fire brigade, right? Where that big hairy problem is the big fire. And, you know, in an old fashioned bucket brigade, you've got a line of people each passing a bucket of water, like from person to person to person, so that there's this constant flow of water onto the fire. And it's particularly a good message because we still have bucket brigades. Like, you know, in any time, like for instance, there's a major earthquake or whatever, you can't get a fire truck in there. You have to create a bucket brigade to do it. And so it may seem like any one person, in this case, in our analogy, any one program, any one initiative, any one organization might not make that quote unquote big of a difference. But just imagine what happens when you pull one person, one bucket out of the bucket brigade, right? You create a hitch in the in the flow. You create friction in our ability to serve. You slow the whole process down. And for so many of us, the problems that our organizations exist to serve or the opportunities that we exist to elevate, because I, we spent a lot of time in arts and cultural institutions and they're not exactly putting out fires, but they know that, but they're serving in a critically important thing. The case is what happens, what do we lose when we lose ground in that? Because every moment that we're not putting something into either the putting out of the fire or the elevation of an opportunity is opportunity lost or a chance for that fire to get even bigger or to go out of control. And I think that is a useful analogy for helping to keep what we do in its appropriate perspective, but also the perspective of how important each individual player, each individual program or initiative is. Because it isn't so much, does this one thing, is this one bucket going to solve it? No. But without this bucket, it becomes a lot harder to solve. Yeah. It really does speak to the strength of community and collaboration. And like that is how we actually accomplish anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know, it seems that in our attempts to simplify stories, which is where we can sometimes naturally gravitate, that we really aren't giving our donors, our constituents, our community enough credit. Right. Somehow it feels like we're kind of dumbing down our stories so they'll get it yeah. and give. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I feel this pain so often, you know, both in the organizations where I work with them or work for them or with my clients now. You know, it was definitely a lesson I learned just so clearly when I was at Harvard Medical School. Nobody wants to do a disservice like to the complexity and the sophistication of either the problem or the nature of your solutions, whatever it might be. So this, of course, creates this incredible tension between like the sophistication of the idea or of the organization or the initiative or whatever it might be, and the simplicity that your audience needs to hear in order to get there. And I think it's one of the places where story structure can be helpful because story structure, right, stories are how we can make the complicated understandable because, again, we put something in a format that our brains intuitively understand. But one of the things that's been really interesting to me, it's going to be the subject of my next book, is why does that work? And, and where I believe the answer lies is in a longstanding saying that a story is an argument, right? It's an argument for something. It is an argument for that this is the best way to do something. It, like I said before, it's that story that connects problem and solution. It's the relationship between cause and effect. So if it's an argument, and this is getting me getting a little wonky. Well, arguments, there's actually a very classic definition of what an argument has to have, right, in order to be successful. So we can go back to Aristotle for that. And the simplest, strongest argument has two principles and a conclusion. And so what I've been exploring and what seems to be, you know, as a hypothesis, which seems to be testing out, is that any idea can be quote unquote, simplified down to its two foundational principles. It's really core principles behind it. And it could be something like automation extends human capability, or you get the results that you design for. You put those two things together and all of a sudden you have kind of a new solution to something that at least conceptually contains it all. And so I'm going to go back to my bucket analogy, because this is what I'm always trying to say to my clients. When you are introducing a concept to someone for the first time, right? So let's, it's a new idea, whether it's fundamentally new in the world or it's new to the person you're talking to. We need to find the simplest, strongest container for that idea. And these principles serve as that because 
when you've got a principle like you get the results that you design for, we're testing to make sure that all the sophisticated nuance of an offering or a program or initiative can be explained by at least one of those two principles. And that now taken together, okay, this is why this organization exists, or this is why this particular program is in place. And the reason why this works without removing the sophistication is because those kind of proverb-like statements, those principles, I mean, this is how we live our own lives, right? Like, you know, one of my favorite principles is a stitch in time saves nine. Well, that's a quote-unquote simple idea, but it's actually an incredibly nuanced, sophisticated, you know, and particularly if I take it and extrapolate to my own life, it covers a lot of stuff, but it's a good place to start. If I explain, let's say, my own process as being built on one of those principles, if you're not somebody who believes that or agrees with that, my process is probably not going to be a good fit for you, right? And so this is what I'm really excited about because I think the opportunity for organizations to add something to their core set of you know, documents, sets of understanding. I mean, we all know we need our mission, our vision, our values, our theory of change. And what I would love to represent is that essentially we've established what our ethos is. And what I mean by that is very specifically, what is the belief system that is not aspirationally driving what we wish we could do? What are the principles that are driving? Why are we doing what we're doing this particular way right now? Right. Mm. Sometimes you can look back at the founder or whatever and say, why did we do this and that? But it's, you know, why do we have this? Why is it this nature of this program? If I take an example here in the Boston area, there's this mobile services van called Bridge Over Troubled Water, which is designed to serve unhoused teens generally. Why mobile? <laughs> like why teens, right? right? There's principles behind those things that when we can articulate at the principle level, we make it A, simple enough for people to understand. And B, because they understand it, they're now in a much more likely position to determine very quickly, both you and them, whether or not they align with that, right? And whether they ever will. So it can save us a lot of time. But because those principles are simple in structure and simple in language, but very sophisticated in the kind of the breadth of the ideas that come together... I believe that we actually resolve that tension between sophisticated and simple. And so this is really what I'm all about. I'm like, yes, you need what your program is or your offering. And yes, we need stories to let those things come to life. But we fundamentally need to know what principles, those stories, our behaviors, our programs, et cetera, are based on. Because that's actually what people align with, respond to, give to, and dedicate themselves to when they're working with us and for us as organizations. That rings so true in our Oh, good. Because <laughs> like I said, it's like, that's the big thesis of the book right now is that the best way to really kind of create a coalition to get, create, you know, an audience yeah. that's invested in what you're doing, both literally and figuratively, is to make it the product of, and this is the key, pre-existing principles. So in other words, to align it with an argument that they haven't heard before, but because those elements or principles they already align with, that they already agree with it, even though they've not heard it prior to you saying it. So yeah, that's yeah. the big idea of the book. I love it. I'll be pre-ordering. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that philanthropy is an exchange of values. So there's yes. absolutely alignment. So that rings true. And being able to hone down the essence of what you do and why you do that and why now, what's the urgency, I think is so based in truth. Yeah. And I think that in the pursuit of trying to simplify things and make connections with donors, I think we've done them a disservice. Yes. Yeah. Because we've tried to simplify to ideas, but again, ideas are based on stories and stories are based on principles. We've kind of been simplifying to the wrong thing. We've just said, it's like, it's this thing. And it's like, but it's actually not. It's actually, let's understand the reasoning behind this, right? Because in my mind, programs are principles. They are the physical manifestation of the principles of the organization. Almost unconsciously, and this is why it's very distinct from a branding process or from a missions or values establishing process, because a lot of times I love these organizations with my whole heart, but a lot of times that is an aspirational exercise. 
And this whole thing is really from the perspective of there is power in the principles you already have. We need to surface them so that we're getting those silent assumptions out there so that we can have those conversations. And by the way, speaking to where we started this whole thing with the world changing so fast, so we can get to those points of alignment or misalignment much more quickly so that we can either resolve them or resolve to move on, right? Anything that I can do to help like speed the process of getting all of us to impact faster, whether that's those of us working in the organizations or those being served by them or those who are giving to them to move all of that faster. There's just too much great stuff in the world is my, you know, one of my primal beliefs, like that the world is a good and beautiful place and that we can still improve it. Did I want to do anything I can to make that happen faster for the folks that can make some of those biggest changes. And in my mind, that's, you know, that's nonprofit and mission-driven organizations. And sometimes that's not always nonprofit, but anybody who's trying to solve a problem that's far bigger than themselves. Beautiful. And I think it's also very deeply rooted in abundance. Yes. Yeah. Right. And not everybody believes that. So, you know, there's some great, some great research that's out of UPenn by a psychologist, Jer Clifton. Very excited about this because he and I have just been having some conversations about how his research applies to messaging. And he's identified 26 primal beliefs. And I got to tell you, I really think this is some of the most important research that's come out in the last five years, because what they found is there's 26 of these primal beliefs that they've found that essentially establish on a continuum, things like that the world is hierarchical or that everything's interconnected or it's atomistic. And these oftentimes oppose each other. And they can be, you know, the big one is whether or not you believe fundamentally that the world is a good and beautiful place or you don't. And so, and as you just said, it comes from a place of abundance. And the minute that we have that recognition for ourselves needs to my mind also include the recognition that there are people who fundamentally don't see the world that way. And so if your approach to philanthropy, if fundraising, to coaching, to consulting, to your whole organization is based on that, there is a subset of people in this population just aren't down with that. And what's interesting is, you know, I was talking with, literally talking with Jer yesterday when I asked him that question, I said, you know, does that mean that there's no hope? And he's like, no, it just means that there's more friction first, right? To, to closing that gap. So yeah, I, it, sorry about that tangent, but it's just, I'm so like eager for people. Anytime you're operating in a business of belief and nonprofits do that so often to have more information on what people believe and how is likely a path to being able to do your job easier or better. And who doesn't want that? Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Accra needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang. We love Bloomerang because it's so, like, it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang. Year over year, we have raised more funds, so obviously I think Bloomerang's been a, a huge part of that. By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, I love it. And I love how fired up you are about it. I know. I love it. (laughs) You've teased us a little bit, and maybe it's too soon to say, but any ideas when that book might be available? Uh, The plan for right now is May of next year. So right now the plan is for May 2024. Yeah. And we have not landed on an actual title for it yet. It's down between two. So if anybody wants to weigh in, I'm happy to hear that. Right now that it's between something that speaks to, I don't know, actually three. Three right now are kind of like one is galvanized, right? And then a subtitle that talks about how to, you know, create an audience, build ideas for buy-in and, you know, potentially change the world kind of thing. Elevating built for buy-in to be the title. So it's meant to sit on the shelf next to made to stick. We've got made to stick and then built for buy-in would be kind of how I'd love to think about it. And then the last one is based on something that I've long said is critical about how we frame our organizations, our missions, and our ideas, that is probably the phrase that people repeat back to me the most, and that is give them something they can't unhear. 
So, mm. you know, so this idea of, and then again, you know, some kind of subtitle about building ideas for buy-in, creating, you know, galvanizing an audience to action, that kind of thing. So that hopefully gives some indication of where the book is going. We just haven't, we haven't settled on the final title yet. So intriguing. All right. So dibs on having you back on the show when the book's released yes, to please. talk about it. And yes. Yeah. Because it's, good. it's, if you know anyone who's ever written a book knows you have to be super clear on who your audience is. And for me, like this is about mission driven people. It is for that. It's for people who are, you know, leading these organizations in the midst of all of this change that need to get, you know, people on board as quickly as possible, create those coalitions, drive those movements. And how can you do that while still honoring the integrity of what your organization stands for and the realistic role that you play in either elevating that opportunity or solving the big problem? Yeah, very good. So I want to circle back. I promised folks we would talk about the moment of truth Yes, that every story needs, and I don't want to skip over that. So tell us about the moment of truth, Tamsin. Remember I said before, there's two principles that always add up to it. The moment of truth is when you reveal the second principle. Is, is, that's what happens there. But in storytelling, every great story starts when we establish something somebody wants but doesn't yet have. That's why I believe every message, every mission should be anchored in a question that doesn't have an answer yet or needs a better one, right? So that's where stories start. And then every story goes through this introduction of a problem that nobody knew about before the story started, but is the problem that actually has to get solved before we can get the answer to the question, right? So there's an audience question, what I like to call a goal. There's a real problem, the thing that actually has to solve to get in the way. And then every story every actual story that we tell other people has what is known by any number of names, but is known as a moment of truth. So sometimes it's a, you know, it's an epiphany. So like my sister's a screenwriter. She says in screenwriting, it's known as the penny drop moment. It is Aristotle referred to it as the anagnorisis, which means recognition translated. And it's the moment where the main character recognizes the quote unquote true nature of the circumstances. So you can understand, I think, how the revelation of a principle about how the world works would create this. That moment of truth is critical because without it, whatever marks the change, right, that resolves the conflict, like it is the thing that immediately precedes that decision about like what's going to happen. What are we going to do? That change doesn't happen without a moment of truth. It doesn't happen without that realization. And yeah, the more that I looked at marketing, sales messages, fundraising messages, all of that, we just got to skip right over from problem to solution. And yet, if we think about these great stories, like in, in movies, you know, classic examples are the moment where you know, Jon Snow recognizes his true birthright in Game of Thrones or in Harry Potter when we recognize where Snape's true loyalties lie or very famously when Darth Vader says to Luke at the end of the second movie, I am your father. It is those things that suddenly make whatever comes afterwards make more sense, right? Or even retroactively make somebody's behavior make more sense. And so to me, this surfacing of this moment of truth of what I call in the book, the truth, the truth statement is the second principle is so important because it creates the conflict that creates change. We don't change unless there's a conflict, like nothing happens. Like, you know, if somebody doesn't do anything with, you know, after an ask or after hearing your message, it's because there was not enough of a conflict to warrant a shift. But that moment of truth, what it does is it creates you know, given the elements of the story so far, it creates a three-way conflict, which basically our poor little brains just can't stand, right? So my favorite example of one of these that we already know, and I don't know if I used this example at the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference, but it's in my book, is the De Beers diamond tagline, a diamond is forever. This is my favorite truth statement, this favorite thing, because it's one of those things where we recognize this story, which was never really told as a story, but it's a story we tell ourselves potentially about why a diamond ring, at least for decades, was the dominant symbol of a forever commitment for people who were getting engaged. So if the question, right, that needed a better answer was what's the best symbol of forever and the kind of the real problem, at least in De Beers' mind, was that people were focused more on this unbroken circle, a circle with no beginning and no end, perfectly good symbol of forever, by the way, but they wanted them to focus on the kind of ring. So they introduced this principle that a diamond is forever, you know, as a tagline. Notice it doesn't say a diamond ring is forever, just as a diamond is forever. Diamond. So again, true nature of circumstances. And so if we can test that against that true nature of circumstances, we can say, well, most people, engineers aside, they fight me on this, would agree that a diamond 
is very difficult to destroy. It's a good, it's a good symbol of forever. Diamond is forever. And so if you believe that, if you agree with that idea, that principle, that concept that a diamond is forever, it instantly creates a conflict. Because if you actually want the best symbol of your commitment, right, and you had to date only been looking at a circle of metal, right, but not the stones on it, and you believe a diamond is forever, something's going to have to change. You're either going to say, well, I don't need the best symbol, you know, maybe this isn't going to work out, so let's just go for amethyst <laughs> instead. I don't know. Or you have to unbelieve that a diamond is forever. You may choose to not believe it metaphorically. You may not choose to believe it figuratively. Where De Beers laid their bet was the easiest thing for people to shift because it was just a shift of perspective, not a shift in belief, was to go from looking at the ring to the kind of ring. And once you yeah. could do that, now the, you know, the resolution in people's head is, well, now I've got a symbol in the, the actual metal ring itself and a symbol in the diamonds on it. So now I've got like a forever, forever ring. And so I'm going to buy a diamond ring instead. And so, you know, what I urge organizations to figure out, and it's again, why I'm saying in this even simpler approach that I'm working on that sits underneath the red thread of this like principle, principle conclusion, it's that second principle that in the context of that big question you're trying to solve in your organization, it's the one that creates the conflict, right? Because you can't have a new idea with just one thing. So one principle won't do it because it's not new, Right. It's not a new direction. It's not a new solution. The second thing is the thing that creates that conflict. So that's why it's so important. And just when it comes down to how we think about anything, when two truths fight, only one of them wins. And so that's our job. If we're really trying to create a shift in thinking is to create a situation where two things that somebody wants, believes, or does are put in contrast with each other so that they really have to choose and just say, like mentally, yep, that's a better case for what I want to be and what do I want to do than what I've got. But the secret, as I was saying before, Tammy, is that this is not about changing people's beliefs. You know, it makes sense, right, in the face of cognitive inertia, which is holding on to the beliefs that we have and the stories that we tell ourselves already. It would make sense to say, well, then we just need to swap in something new. And in fact, most marketing sales and fundraising messages have been built on that. How do we get them to understand this new thing, this new belief? We want them to, we need them to want something new or believe something new. But because the longer we believe something, the stronger the belief, like right, that makes new beliefs the hardest to gain and the weakest to hold. So this whole philosophy that I'm arguing for is that every decision has a story we believe. We do not have to be convinced of beliefs that we already have. So if we can create these stories based on pre-existing beliefs, a diamond is forever, right? A ring itself is a symbol of forever. And I want the best symbol. Well, then it becomes not an exercise in change. It becomes an exercise in deeper connection, right? To who somebody wants to be, to the problems that they're trying to solve, the legacies they want to leave, the narratives they want to build, you know, through their work, through what they do in this world and all of those related things. Sure. Identity. Absolutely. It's a hundred percent about identity because identification is the one form of extrinsic motivation. I, I identify with this thing. It's the one form of extrinsic motivation that is as powerful as intrinsic motivation. And yet it's mm. the one we use the least and the one we surface the information the least and just not good at it. You know, we've gotten good at, you know, back to Aristotle, logos and pathos, right? Kind of the rational argument for what we're doing or the, you know, the emotional argument of story. And what I'm really arguing for and what, you know, I hope the find, find Your Red Thread has been helpful with and what this next book is really designed for is the ethos part of it. You know, that belief system, because that piece, that piece of persuasion where we're appealing to the audience's character. You know, we're finding the overlap there. I mean, is really in my mind an overlap of belief systems. And you can't know that you're doing that if you, A, don't know what your belief system is, and B, if you don't surface it in such a way that someone can actually examine it, respond to it, and determine whether or not they identify with it. Yeah. I'm just taking what you're sharing and processing it against, as we do, our own lived experience. And I think about the work that we did at the Children's Center in Detroit when I mm. was chief philanthropy officer there for nine years. One of those belief systems that we introduced that really resonated was we took 
27 mental and behavioral health programs that serve children who have experienced unimaginable abuse, mm. neglect, mental health, behavioral health issues only made more complex by poverty and racism and violence and all of the things. And we honed it down to a belief statement called Heal Children, Heal Detroit. Mm. Yep. And I'm just trying to like process, is that that second belief principle? That's the answer. That's the message, that if, if we heal children, we will heal Detroit. And what I would say, that's based on something. That's based on a connection between healing and the healing of children and the overall health of Detroit, right? So it would be about surfacing those things. Because yeah. where my brain oh, goes is you probably, it's probably believed it's based on some kind of principle, a la the children are our future, right? Or start as you mean to go on to use a Stephen Coveyism, right? Like it's kind of root and fruit too is another kind of thing. It's like how somebody starts, right? is going to determine how it finishes. So there's probably some belief in there of some principle. And that's based on that if we can have our children healthy, right, then we will eventually have a much healthier city. And then there is something about the healing piece of it, right? So, because there's actually two elements, it's heal the children. So it's heal and children. And so again, there's a healing piece. The work would be, what is the principle that explains why healing is the answer, right? Because someone else could say growth or whatever, but there's, again, there's a principle behind why the organization operates the way it does around why the focus on healing and not just because it's a medical center, right? There's a reason why that was the decided to be the point of intervention. And that's what you would want to be working to surface. Yeah. Yeah. It's really deep work. Yeah. And, but what I always want to point out is that the principles are already there or else you wouldn't have come up with it, right? Like you're already living it. And so again, rather than this be an aspirational thing that you have to go figure out and do all this, it really is a matter of excavation back. Like we believe that, you know, whatever your mission might be, like the fact that it exists is because it's based on principles, right? So an example I used in the nonprofit storytelling conference was when I was at the Boston Conservatory. You know, one of the principles that we surfaced was that, you know, performing artists can perform anywhere, right? That was one principle. And the second principle that our approach was based on was that employability was just as important as artistic ability when it came to the success of performing artists. And so that's why we believed those are the principles behind the rationale. We could summarize the rationale by saying, you know, we believe the best path to success is to replicate real life, right? So our equivalent of heal children, heal Detroit was replicate real life. Like that's how we thought we would be more successful. Why? Because one, we believe that employability is just as important as artistic ability. So we need to make sure that we're replicating that piece of it. And we believe that a performing artist, a true performing artist can perform anywhere and anyhow, like, right, we're not limiting that to pure artistic ability because both of those things connect both with real life and with future success. Like that was how we, you know, again, this is me retroactively. Like I did not have this clarity of thinking 20 years ago when I was at the conservatory. I wish I did. It would have sped things up. But I can now see retroactively what were the principles in play there. That's when I get so excited about this because, you know, my experience as I'm starting to road test this with clients so far is it's actually a fairly quick process. And tell me the last time you had a message-based thing in any organization that you can get done in less than a day. I can't think of one. So I'm really excited about the potential of really getting something that we can get really a substantive, powerful articulation of something that just drives everything else in our organizations quickly. Like I'm just super excited about that because if I could do that in the world, then I would be a happy, happy, happy woman. Because Mm -hmm. just when I think about all the opportunities that we can move forward and all the impact we can have just simply by kind of getting our own way, getting ourselves unstuck from stories and operating really at these systems of belief. I think the opportunities are endless there. Yeah. What a great message. And you are doing that. Oh, thanks. I hope so. I hope it comes through just how deeply passionate it is about this. I know when I was you know, asked to describe the tone of the book and who it's for, I, I know one of the words that I used was reverent because I just love people who do this work. It's why I have been in nonprofits in one way or another since the age of 19. Academics, researchers, artists, performers, you know, social services, just, you know, the people who exist to give something to this world to make it better. Yes, those are primal beliefs, but those are my people. And uh, whatever I can do to help make their life easier and make their 
passions more practical and make, you know, what could be arcane to some more accessible to others. That's just what I want to do. That's my own mission in this world. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking that on and contributing in that way. Tamsin, at the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions. Are you game? I'm game. Yes. Sure. All right. First one. (laughs) Okay. What's the best fundraising or donor communications advice you've ever received? I think the best fundraising or donor communications advice I ever received was the kind of observation that mindset united donors more than monetary levels. In other words, people who gave for a certain reason had more in common with each other than two people who were at the same like giving level. And so I think that really made a big difference for me with that realization and that observation because it simplified and actually really changed the approach to how we formed those fundraising messages. It felt more true to how people actually were. So it's mindset-based, not money-based more often than not. So good. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman in Behavioral Economics, which may sound strange. It's a deep book, so I'll give an easier one (laughs) for folks. But I love that book because it just really helps you understand what is at play when people make decisions about things. And I just think, you know, when you're in the business of helping make people decisions in your favor, as far as, you know, the world, your community, your organization, their own pocketbook goes, that's useful. I would say a quicker read, but still one of my favorite books and where I use something from it still every day is a book called Magic Words by Tim David. Jonah Berger literally today released a book called Magic Words. There's now two different books, but the one I've definitely read and recommend is is Tim David. And he basically talks about, about, I believe, seven words, things like and, but, somebody's name, those kinds of things where just these little shifts in how you phrase things can make a huge difference. So I, Tim David, Magic Words. Thank you. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser or storyteller must possess? Cognitive empathy, which is the ability to think about how somebody thinks about something. So a lot of times we talk about emotional empathy. That's our ability to understand how somebody feels. But we don't really have too many tools at our disposal to change how somebody feels in the moment. But we do have the ability to potentially change how somebody thinks. And since feelings many, many times, actually the majority of time are driven by our thoughts, I think that's one of the best places to start. Second, I would say curiosity and particularly curiosity outside of your area of expertise. I think the more that you can draw in examples, stories, concepts, data, research from outside of your own area of expertise, it A, enriches your own understanding of your area of expertise, but B, makes it a lot easier for you to make those connections on behalf of the people you're working with or for to make ideas more clear. And I would say the third is a skill to build, which is the ability to clearly articulate what it is that you're talking about. Obviously, I'm biased to that as somebody who is, you know, does message strategy for a living. But I think in this world of the rise of AI, our ability to synthesize in writing can be pretty easily replicated by AI. And I think that's fine. I mean, I think there's still a role for us to be, you know, checking all of that, obviously. And it's, I use chat GPT every day at this point. But so much of the work that we do in philanthropy is spoken, <laughs> and which means you don't have an AI chat GPT in your corner to be able to draw those connections and to be able to articulate and to be able to synthesize. We are about to see the rise of the spoken word and the in-person ability to adapt orally in the moment. The people who already excel there or who can upskill there really, really quick are going to be the people who excel overall in the next few years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You heard it here. It rings true though. It truly does. Tamsin, what's your favorite fundraising or storytelling or communication application or tool? It's recency bias to the extreme, but honestly, like the difference and the time saver that AI tools have created for me, even in the last like two months has been dramatic for those reasons of synthesis or connection or storytelling, et cetera, because we all have those moments where our brains just won't go where we want them to go, where we're like, I need an example. I need a metaphor. I need an analogy. I need a story that explains X or, you know, the reverse, which is like, I've got three examples of something. I have no idea what the principle is that they share. To be able to dump that into ChatGPT when you don't, you know, there's people who are good at it, like, you know, but they're not always there. So the ability to be able to kind of ask something else and to be able to have that kind of ready reflection of just as a thought prompt 
again, I know it's super recent, but there has never been anything in my career that has so dramatically that I have adopted so quickly. I even had resident skeptic on my business card for a number of years when I worked (laughs) in an advertising agency that I've adopted so quickly and has made such an immediate difference in how I do my work. You can have it shorten something. You can have it rewrite it. They can have it rewrite it at a different level. You could have it mimic somebody's tone. It can help you find an anecdote. It can help you analyze the copy that you've got on the site and say, what do you see as the big ideas here? And it can tell you what it thinks the big ideas are. And you can use it as like a kind of a ready-made automatic focus group. We double check all of this stuff, of course. To me, the applications are significant, immediate. And given what we're talking about at the beginning, you don't have time to wait to determine whether or not you think it's going to be useful or not. Like dig in there, see how you might be able to use it, absorb everything you can, and just discover just how many different ways it's going to affect what you do in a good way. I think there's a there's an opportunity to be excited about that. Because again, so much of you know, who your listeners are and who the folks that we love are, are people who are great in person. And AI will never replace that. But it can give you better things to talk about when you're in person and better clarity (laughs) when you're in person. And I think that's, and also when you're writing, but I think that's where to really focus on is how can you use it to enrich and clarify what you're already great at. So well said. And again, complacency, like we will be left behind hundred percent. And I wish, I wish I had a better outlook for that. But I, you know, like I said, Dr. Nadia was, I mean this with all sincerity. I haven't seen someone land a point that beautifully in a really long time. And it was mm-hmm. just, you know, she made sure that, that the audience felt it physiologically, viscerally. Wow. Like it was something she kept saying. I want, I, she's like, I don't want you to understand it here. I want you to understand it in your gut. You need to feel this in your mm-hmm. gut, how important this is. And she did it. And I hope there are other places to see her talk because you know that conference was not one that where you know the, the recordings from it are public. But if you ever have an opportunity and I'll, I'll try to dig out her name so you can put it in show notes or whatever. I do know that she runs a company called Reinvention Academy. So if you if hunt her down that way, Perfect. Thank you. Favorite conference and why? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's like asking a favorite child. You know, I did love the nonprofit storytelling conference because it was so lovely to just kind of be immersed in that. Another of my favorites is a conference called Epic that happens in Toronto. It's kind of a small group of folks that are really dedicated, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, folks really dedicated to like committing something better for the world. And they meet yearly to kind of do a reset. So it's it's everything from kind of you know, health and wellness to real great content to use in your business. That's fantastic. And then I feel very lucky to be attending what I refer to as Big Ted this year. I've been to one other TED conference and that was the TED Summit in Banff a few years ago. And I'm very excited for that because for me, any conference where I can get what I like to refer to as intellectual inputs is very useful, you know, just because the more information I can collect, the more that each of us can turn our pattern-seeking brains and whether we mean to or not, like it, our brains will start to find connections. So the more you put in, the more connections your brain will find. And so, you know, TED or even a TEDx conference, love those, obviously, I'm very biased, but, you know, it doesn't have to be TED. Your local TEDx conference is also a wonderful place to get all those intellectual inputs outside of your area of expertise. Beautiful. And last question, knowing what you know now about fundraising and storytelling and communication, what advice would you give your younger self just starting out in the profession? 19-year-old Tamson. Flip the script. I think the sooner that I understood that the more that I could look at an organization or a piece of content or a message through the eyes of the audience that was taking it, and rather than trying to like say, what's our message and can we get it out there? Just really looking at where are the people that we're talking to? What are the points of connection that they already have with where we're going? I think that would have sped up a lot of things because I still think it's the most important shift that we can make. And the sooner you can make it in your work, I think the more successful anyone can be. So good. Thank you for joining us, Tamson. My pleasure. If you want to learn more about Tamson Webster, her consulting services, her book, Find Your Red Thread, or follow her on social media, we've included links to her handles in the show notes, as well as links to the other resources that we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Thank you. 
thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tea of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a fundraising transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.